Hello, and thanks for tuning us in on the Main Question Podcast. I'm your host, Ron Lisnett. The word fat, it can evoke a lot of emotions and reactions, mostly on the negative side. But in terms of its role in our bodies and what it means for our health and well-being, it is absolutely critical. And it's a more complicated story than you might think. Did you know that we have several kinds of fat and that they come in different colors? Also probably less well-known is the role it plays in communicating with our brain, battling diseases, dealing with aging, as well as its function in weight gain or loss. This relationship between the brain and our fat, as well as our energy levels, is the main focus of the work Associate Professor of Neurobiology Christy Townsend and her many students do in the lab. They examine these lines of communication and the role they play in some major health issues, obesity and diabetes chief among them. These two diseases are considered pandemics in the United States and across the globe. We spoke with Christy about her work and about the role that basic research plays in coming up with new drugs, devices, and therapies that help us be healthier. She also talks about the biotech industry in Maine and what the future might look like for this growing sector of the Maine economy. So I, I took a look at your website, and I, I pulled one sentence out, and I'm wondering if you can help unpack this for us and make us understand it. It says, the Townsend Lab is interested in how the brain coordinates energy balance and how the central and peripheral nervous systems undergo plasticity. So please uh, translate for us. Certainly. So to, I'll start with the anatomy. So our central nervous system is our brain and spinal cord. So that's really what we tend to think about when we think about the field of neuroscience is studying the brain. Um, but the peripheral nerves actually innervate every tissue and organ in the entire body. So we're really interested in how those nerves help the brain communicate with all the other parts of the body that are important for metabolism. So for example, um, we are interested in adipose tissue or fat tissue which is distributed everywhere in the body, but we have lots of different types of fat, uh, brown fat and white fat. We have visceral, which is a little more unhealthy versus the fat under our skin. And all of those tissues are innervated by the nervous system. So that's what we call um, brain adipose communication. Um, the other aspect is energy balance. So in order to stay metabolically healthy, we have to balance our calorie intake with our calorie burning. Um, and those processes are also controlled by the brain and the peripheral nerves. So particularly in adipose, that's where we store fuel. So that's where we store fat. Um, and the ability to burn that fat and burn calories is in part controlled by the nerves that innervate the tissue. The meaning of the term innervate. So that means that the nerves are coming into contact with the tissue and making a chemical connection. So they release um, chemicals called neurotransmitters that exert some sort of effect or cause a function to occur in the tissue. I feel like I'm back in uh, high school biology class. Right. It's, it's all vaguely coming back. <laughs> right. um, talk about the concept of balance. I mean, <laughs> if you look at any part of life, whether it's the stock market or, you know, uh, consumer consumption or whatever, everybody talks about balance and, you know, so many things are out of balance now in our world. But uh, from, from your perspective, the balance between the brain and the body, mm -hmm. um, is that uh, a concept you wrestle with all the time? Yeah, so in biology, balance is a big theme, and we call it homeostasis. And the body's actually very good at keeping things in balance. But unfortunately for us in the modern 21st century world, as we gain weight or become metabolically unhealthy or tend toward obesity and diabetes, our body decides that that's the new thing to stay in balance with. So it can become very different, difficult to lose weight um, or to become healthy again once you have obesity and diabetes. So that's the, the bad news. 
But the good news is our body is very good at sensing very small perturbances in our um, system and, and balancing that. So if we eat more food one day, then our body might eat less the next day as just a natural appetite regulatory process. So if you give the body a chance and don't, you know, uh, abuse it, so to speak, constantly over and over, um, we're somewhat resilient? I would say so. Yeah. Yeah. We've evolved um, as humans to be able to um, especially live through times of very little food because most of human history, we haven't had a lot of food. So it's more of a challenge in the modern environment where we have plenty too much food and a lot of it pretty unhealthy that's easily available. So that's more of a challenge than it has been through most of our evolution. The science you study, the issues you study, talk about how we see that in our world. Uh, you know, you talk about obesity, diabetes, some of these other diseases. What how big a problem are they here and, and across the country or the world? I mean, th these are things that uh, are, are out there and need to be dealt with, right? Exactly, yeah. So obesity and diabetes right now are worldwide pandemics. So we tend to think of Western countries like the United States having, you know, big problems with these numbers, but it's really a worldwide problem. Uh, the obesity epidemic in the United States really took off around 1980, which we may or may not be able to correlate with some dietary <laughs> food uh, system changes that happened around then. Um, so they are definitely big problems. But coupled with that, they're also intricately connected with our society in a way that they're really stigmatized diseases and they're really misunderstood. So there's a lot of um, blame on people in terms of willpower and things like that. When, when you look at the biology, we know that particularly obesity, is a genetic predisposition coupled with environmental effects. And both of those are very complex. It's not one single gene. It's not one single environmental trigger like eating too much. It really is very complicated. So placing blame on people for their own metabolism is <laughs> one of the issues that we have to combat all the time with the, the science. And why is this uh, uh, such a big issue in Maine, particularly? Yeah, so in Maine, uh, well, when we look nationally at the trends for obesity, particularly, and remember, obesity leads to diabetes, so those um, rates tend to follow each other. As soon as you increase obesity rates, you're going to see diabetes rates go up soon after. Um, so Maine and, and lots of other areas of the country where socioeconomic um, levels are worse, more poverty, you tend to see more obesity occurring. And that's partially, you know, healthcare is not as present as it could be, but also availability of food that's healthy and, um, you know, people who are able have the means to cook healthier meals and things like that. So Maine is one of the most obese and diabetic states in the Northeast. Does this all fall under the category of basic research? Is that, is that what we're talking about here? Yeah, so we like to think of our work as spanning the full spectrum from basic research, which is literally discovering new things about how the body works, the physiology, the cell biology, um, and then moving that across the spectrum of translational research into the clinic. So we hope that our discoveries eventually move into human um, medical areas and hopefully have some impact to be able to combat either by prevention or treatment of obesity and diabetes. How does that process work, and do you have any examples? I mean, does someone take you, read your findings, take them at a medical school or a, you know, a, a commercial laboratory, and, and then sort of play with it and see if they can come up with a solution? Yeah, so both things happen. So obviously, as scientists, our goal is to share our findings and publish our work in a way that's accessible by as many people as possible. So then at that point, industry, med schools, other researchers could use our findings and build on them um, to make 
treatments um, or therapeutic options. We try to do some of that ourselves as well. So one example is we've discovered with obesity and diabetes as well as aging that we lose the proper nerve supply to our fat tissue. So we call that neuropathy. Um, neuropathy is also very common with diabetes in general. Um, you might be familiar with people who end up with limb amputations. That's you know, the extreme end of a neuropathy condition. So nobody had discovered that it extends into our fat tissue under the skin. So when we found that, we wanted to find a way to detect it and a way to treat it. So we've been working on a medical device with some of the bioengineers here at UMaine to be able to measure nerve activity, not just in the skin, but in the underlying fat tissue. And once we can diagnose that the nerves are starting to die, we hope to be able to, to deliver therapies directly to that tissue and hopefully stop that progression and reverse it if possible. So that's an interesting um, crossroads, the basic research and the applied research or the solutions. Uh, I mean, one can't exist without the other, right? Exactly. We really feel strongly about that. Basic research on its own still has a very important role, especially at a place like UMaine. Um, so we very much value the basic research even in its own silo. But we hope personally, because we do biomedical research, that we eventually move our findings into you know, human and animal-based medical treatments. So maybe let's do a little uh, biology 101. Maybe sure. you, you could c coach us through this. Um, how does the brain control uh, the energy balance, nerves and chemicals and that, those kinds of things? And how does that change as we age? Is that sort of the plasticity uh, part of this? Well, we don't know. The plasticity part is an active area of research, so I'll talk about that in a second. But we do have a part of the brain called the hypothalamus. It's a very evolutionarily old part of the brain, so lots of animals have it. And that part of the brain is important for controlling our appetite, so how hungry we are. Um, one example is there's a hormone called leptin that comes from our fat tissue. It circulates in the blood and goes to the brain and acts in the hypothalamus to tell the body we've stored enough fat. You don't need to eat anymore. You can burn calories. Um, there's lots of other systems in the body that do similar things. Lots of things increase our appetite or decrease our appetite, and all those signals converge in the hypothalamus. Um, that part of the brain also helps control the nerves that innervate our tissues, including fat tissue, and help increase calorie burning. So, for example, sympathetic nerves, which release um, a neurotransmitter called norepinephrine, which is we might have heard of from the fight-or-flight response, um, that also helps burn the fat that we store so that we can release that fuel for energy when we need it. So that's part of the energy balance. Let's talk about fat. Yep. So um, people, I, I'm certainly surprised to learn that we have all kinds of different kinds and they're different colors. So <laughs> uh, right. t tell us, uh, give us the, the story about fat. Yes. So uh, we tend to think just of the fat that makes us gain weight and stores fuel. And that is certainly a very important type of fat. We need that fat to be healthy, actually. People who have too little um, fat tissue can actually become very sick. Um, so our fat does store fuel, but it also has important immune roles. It has important endocrine roles. It secretes hormones, like I mentioned. Um, and the fat tissue that's under our skin, the subcutaneous fat, is really the healthy fat. And that's what can help prevent things like diabetes. We also have fat um, around our internal organs called visceral fat. Um, and that's the one that can tend to become more sick um, and pro-inflammatory and lead to type 2 diabetes. Um, that's all white fat, however. We also have brown fat, um, and it's actually brown in color because it's um, mitochondria, which are like the powerhouse of the cell, are brown and because of their iron. Um, so that is actually a brown tissue. And that one is specialized to burn calories. So instead of storing fuel, it burns fuel and releases heat. 
Um, so human babies, for example, have a lot of brown fat in between their shoulder blades because they're so little and they need to produce heat through this tissue to um, stay warm when they're young. Um, but adult humans do have some brown fat. Um, we think maybe people who are metabolically more healthy might have more brown fat or more active brown fat. Um, and then there's other flavors as well. So we, there's pink fat that people have studied around the mammary glands, and there's yellow fat that's in our bone marrow. So we really have fat throughout the entire body, and it's crucial for our um, health to have our fat in the right place and functioning correctly. If you watch TV or see ads or whatever, the word fat has a certain... Um it's got a bad rap, I guess, but what you're saying, I mean, we need it. Our brains run on fat in, in a lot of ways, right? Yeah, and that's the other thing is our, our brains are the second fattiest tissue in the body after our actual fat tissue. So, so calling someone a fat head is a compliment? It could be, yeah. I mean, you still want the right amount of fat. You want it to function properly, but fat in our diet is critical. So we really do rely on fat in our diet to be able to keep things like the brain and our nervous system functioning properly. So fat has been vilified. Um, and interestingly, I told you 1980 is when the obesity epidemic in the United States really took off, and that's also when the trend of low-fat diets took off. I don't think that's a coincidence, although we probably need more research to definitively look at that. But a lot of low-fat foods replace the flavor of fat with things like sugar and salt, which we now know sugar is not good for you when you're trying to accumulate the right type of fat and keep it healthy. So, um, Now, you're not a medical doctor, but no. what would you say about our ability to change, affect, improve all of this stuff we're talking about? Yeah, so I think it's happening slowly. I think the research that's happening in laboratories like ours and hundreds of other laboratories around the country who study um, metabolism and energy balance, that information is slowly trickling out to the public, to medical doctors, being implemented in, in new practices and behaviors. So it will take time, but I think we're learning the right things now to be able to reverse this tide of um, increasing rates of obesity and diabetes. Let's talk about the biotech industry overall. In, in Maine, what would you say about it, the status of that industry in Maine and beyond? Uh, what are the good news stories? Is this a growing field? I think so. And, and I have an interesting vantage point because I serve on the board of directors of a nonprofit in Maine called the Bioscience Association. Um, and that's a group that combines both academic and industry partners to try and improve biotech and bioscience um, fields in Maine. And so from that um, work that I do, I can see that statewide this, these fields really are growing, especially in southern Maine, but we have a lot happening up near the university up here as well. Um, but I do think we're so close to Boston, which is really the biotech capital of the world, um, and we have such a critical mass of people with the right skills and you know, good manufacturing base and things like that. I do think biotech will be growing in Maine. And so startup companies, that's where this all begins. I'm sure there's big companies that are out there, but um, you have a startup company yourself. So what are you creating? What are you trying to, what problem are you focusing on? Yeah, so we quickly learned that if you do want to move your basic research into clinics and have it be applicable um, in medical practice, that the best way to do that is to try and commercialize your finding, protect it um, with intellectual property. Um, and the easiest way to get funding to continue that process is to form a company. So that's been a fun process. Um, my graduate student, who's now my postdoc, is the CEO of our spinoff company. It's called Neurite Inc., um, which is a little bit of a nerd pun because part of the nerves that innervate our tissues are called neurites, N-E-U-R-I-T-E, -E, but we called our company neurite, N-E-U-R-I-G-H-T, because we want to fix neuropathy. We want to make it right. So yeah, we, we nerd out about the name. But so it's been fun to form that company and learn the skills that are required to make 
um, commercialization of a medical product successful. Um, there's a lot of regulatory hurdles, of course, as there should be um, for patient safety and efficacy. So we'll be working on all of that in the next year, getting our medical device to function in a way that we hope will be competitive in the market. Right. So startups are looking to either create a device or a process and, and get that out there and, and have it make a difference. Is that? But that's that's sort of the ultimate goal and then grow it from there, right? Exactly. And it's actually a very long process because to go through clinical testing in humans, there's multiple phases that are very expensive and time consuming. So it will take a while before our device or any medical um, technology or drug um, ends up making it to market. But that's the hope that right. will, it will have a positive impact. Now, every time we come and visit your lab, it always uh, looks very busy. You have a lot of students up here. Talk about the opportunity for students, even undergrads, to do research. Is, is that something that you focus on? Definitely. So we have, at any given time, between 15 and 20 people in the lab, and usually about half of those are undergraduates. So we have groups of postdocs, PhD students, master's students, um, technicians, and undergrads working in research teams. And I really feel strongly about the benefit both of research teams, where you have diverse perspectives and experiences together trying to solve a biological problem, but also the inclusion of undergraduates. And for a couple reasons, they're very passionate about what they do, and they really are um, clear-eyed about how the training in a laboratory will help them into their future careers. So we think that's a great win-win. But they also come in with a fascinating perspective that they don't have the tunnel vision we develop in the lab after doing this work for years and years. So they come in with fresh ideas and, you know, a new perspective that really benefit the project. So it's a lot of fun to work with students. And I think it's a critical part of our academic mission at places like UMaine to give students those opportunities and allow them to be competitive as they enter the job market. I just wanted to circle back to sort of the issues that, that you're really focusing on, the obesity and diabetes. I've seen figures about diabetes. It's sort of astounding how much is we're going to see in the future. It's one in three or some, some, some crazy number like that. Is, that. is that where we're headed? Yeah, the numbers are scary. And uh, most of it's type 2 diabetes, so the type that stems from obesity. Um, only about 10% of diabetes cases are the type 1, which is an um, uh, um, immune problem in the pancreas where you don't produce insulin. So yes, these rates of type 2 diabetes will continue to grow if we don't reverse this tide of, of obesity. But luckily, it's reversible. Type 2 diabetes is reversible. It's not easy. As I mentioned, our body fights us <laughs> when we try and lose weight, unfortunately. But it is possible to reverse that condition, and that's really the hope. But the other big concern is the numbers at the childhood level. So we never used to, to call type 2 diabetes type 2 diabetes. We called it adult diabetes for a long time because it was always adults getting it. Now we have huge levels of children developing type 2 diabetes because of childhood obesity. So those really are, to me, the worrying numbers. And, and that goes back to not enough exercise, not getting outside, too much screen time. I mean, you, we could, the list goes on it's and on. It's lots of things. It's lots of things, yeah. And, and yeah, it's tough to put your finger on one thing because it really is a combinatorial effect. And some of it is transgenerational as well. So, Are there lessons learned or some, if we look around the world at other, um, you know, Europe or, or, or elsewhere, I mean, are there lessons we can take from how they do things versus how things are happening here in the U.S.? Um, probably. Uh, I think growing and cooking our own food is sort of a privilege in the United States, but something that seems to be connected to healthier living. So I think that's definitely important. Um, re reducing convenience foods, um, processed foods that tend to have more sugar and carb and not as much nutrient dense 
um, components. So things like that are obvious. But it, it does seem from looking at the literature that our diet is the biggest thing we can address and improve. Um, but stress <laughs> increases obesity. We live in a stressful lifestyle. We don't have great health care in the United States. So, you know, things like that hopefully can start to move in the right direction in the future. So pulling back a little bit, looking at things from maybe the, the satellite view, mm-hmm. what are the, the larger trends and stories in biotech? I mean, what, what, what gets you excited when you see what's possibly out on the horizon? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. So um, I do think that the process of moving things from a laboratory into clinical practice through commercialization and through biotech spinoffs um, is becoming more and more accessible for academics, and academics realize how critical that is to make sure their findings make it into society. Um, so I think just the ability to know that route to travel as a faculty member um, is a huge improvement. But in terms of trends in general, um, I think moving away from pure pharmaceutical treatments for conditions is something I'm seeing. So medical devices, other therapies that might not just be taking a drug, a pill every day for the rest of your life. I think that's another trend. So um, especially when you look at cancer and immune therapies happening, gene therapies happening for different genetic conditions. I mean, we really are in a molecular revolution when it comes to finding new treatments. Right. And then if you talk about, you know, the sequencing the genome and all that, I mean, the battle against cancer obviously gets a lot of news. I mean, it seems like we're on the cusp of really making some progress there. Is that fair to say? Uh, well, I'm not a cancer biologist, but from what I, you know, read in order to teach the cell biology that I teach, um, yeah, I think we're moving in a, in a great direction with the, the sequencing and the molecular techniques that have been developed. So let's just talk about, I, we always ask these questions on, on, on podcasts. If you look out five or 10 years, uh, in terms of startups, in terms of um, what might be happening here in Maine, what, what, do you th- what do you think you might see and what do you hope to see? I think we're in a really exciting time for you, Maine. Um, I've only been here about five or six years, but in that time I've seen a, sort of a shift in um, attitude about how we can be as a research university and be a leader, not just in the state, but hopefully nationally, especially around areas like biomedical research. And a critical part of that is commercializing and moving things into the clinic Um, and really applying our research, which we're excellent at in other parts of the university already. Our engineering and forestry and agriculture programs already are very applied, but hopefully we can move our health and biomedical sciences in that direction as well. Well, exciting to think about. Thanks for taking the time to talk with us about it. Thanks very much. Thanks for joining us. You can find all of our episodes in the usual spots you get your podcasts from Apple iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. Our website has them, too, at umaine.edu slash podcasts. Send us your thoughts on what you hear at mainquestion at maine.edu. This is Ron Lisnett. We'll catch you next time on The Main Question.